Americans in the Psalms. <laughs> and uh, the amazing SP and Addison are leading us this morning. Now, I don't know whether you know these guys, but um, from the very first time we met them, they're incredibly gifted and able to do so many, so many, so many different things. But well, the thing that strikes you most about them is that they just get on and serve. I don't know whether you know that about them. They just get on, do all the kind of things in the background that nobody actually ever sees. And so um, that's what they're coming with this morning. They're, not, they're coming as incredibly gifted people, but they're coming with these incredible hearts of servants. So they're also going to lead us in a time of communion straight after their uh, talk. So why don't, why don't we pray for these guys this morning? So thank you for SP and for Addison. Thank you for their incredible heart of serving you and just laying down their lives for you. And we just pray that you would speak to them this morning. And we just open up our own hearts and our um, minds to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everyone. I'm SP. This is my smoking hot wife, Addison. <laughs> um, wanted to make it clear that uh, we are the original American couple um, <laughs> in this church. <laughs> we moved from Alabama. Um, I'm just a kid, born and raised in Alabama. Um, Addison was uh, raised in, in Georgia. We moved here from Alabama uh, because of her work. Uh, she's a tax accountant with Deloitte. Um, we thought it was sort of ironic that we declared our independence from you guys um, because of taxes, and yet we come back to the motherland because of none other than taxes. <laughs> Crazy that. Uh, anyways, uh, Steve and Viv, they asked us to pick out a psalm, um, which we did, and just give our insights, which we will do. And uh, yeah, so... We picked Psalm 73, and Addison is just going to kick us off and give us an overview and read it over us. Um, our talk is really jam-packed, so stay with us. We're going to be going for it, all right? So it's jam-packed of information, so go ahead. Um, okay, Psalm 73 is considered a wisdom psalm, and it's attributed to Asaph. And Asaph um, was a Levite, and he was a direct descendant of one of the three sons of Levi. Um, and Levites were the priests and the religious leaders of the Israelites. And Asaph was one of the worship leaders chosen by David to be in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. And he was also in charge of the symbols, so apparently he was a big deal. Um, and the psalm is set up in question and answer format, where Asaph poses a question at the beginning, and then he arrives at his answer at the end. And it's not the longest psalm in the psalms, but it's not the shortest. So I'm going to read it as quickly as I can to not lose your attention. <laughs> Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given in love. Yeah, so one, um, and not the most happiest of psalms, <laughs> um, but we're just going to kind of step through it section by section, and, uh, and that's just kind of how we're going to structure the talk, and then give some kind of practical points at the end. So, this starts off with Asaph saying, uh, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he throws out the comment that he came to a point where he started to question that goodness when he saw the wicked prospering. Now, Asaph is not completely out of line when he, when he starts this questioning um, because he and the rest of Israel were operating in the Old, in the old Covenant um, where the Lord gave promises like in Exodus. And it says in Exodus 19.5, now, if you obey me fully, this is the Lord talking, and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Or in Exodus 20, uh, which is part of the Ten Commandments, where the Lord is speaking about having no other God before him. Um, after the Lord says that to Moses, he, he says, he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Ten Commandments also say, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land of the Lord uh, that the Lord is giving you. Um, so the Lord is giving these commandments and these standards and in turn giving these promises prosperity and peace and favor. So Asaph is looking at the law and then looking at reality and then saying, these don't really match up, Lord. What, what gives? Um, but apart from the old, old covenant, maybe you relate to Asaph in your day-to-day life. Maybe you look at a colleague who gets promoted over you who may not have, um, I'm just going to, we're just going to share. Check. Hello? All right. Um, you might be, you might look at a colleague who gets promoted over you, uh, who may not have earned it fairly or, Maybe your heart's desire is to have a baby, yet you see people getting pregnant around you who don't even want a child. Maybe you look at 
a celebrity who pretty much breaks every single standard that the Lord has set, yet they have favor, they have fame, they have fortune, and they can do pretty much whatever the heck they want, and, and it's okay. Um, do you ever have these thoughts? Yeah? <laughs> good, good. I know I have the thought, man, it must be nice to not live by these standards, or it must be nice to not have a conscience, or... <laughs> or to not have a care in the world. Um, so this is the questioning that Asaph is battling. And uh, when he says in verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant, some tr- translations say, for I was envious of the foolish. So, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So I started to feel justified when I was reading this and thought, yeah, why, Lord? Why, why is this so? Until we came across this quote, this quote, this quote from Charles Spurgeon, it'll come up on the screen. It says, "It is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess I was envious, but worse still, that he should have to put it, I was envious of the foolish." <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, for our thoughts and questions. Our, our thoughts and questions, they ro- revolve around our perspective, which is what we're talking about today. We, uh, where are we setting our eyes? And are we setting them on, are, are we setting them on earthly issues or are we set, setting them on eternity? Second Corinthians 4 talks about living a life of hardship and using, fra- uh, using phrases like we're pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not despaired, persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. He goes on in verse 16 and, uh, through 18 of 2 Corinthians 4. It'll come up. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though hourly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Also, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it'll come up as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us, um, fixed, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him... He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in that passage, Jesus has that eternal perspective as he goes to the cross and as he endures that pain. But here in the psalm, Asaph, he doesn't have that eternal perspective. He's setting his eyes completely on the here and now. And I'm not going to read all the, the next section, uh, but in verses 4 through 12 of the psalm, he's just ranting in bitterness, saying, They have no struggles. They are free from burdens. They scoff and speak malice. They're fat. <laughs> Their bodies are healthy and strong. In this ranting, he's essentially... He's essentially digging himself into a hole of bitterness. 
each comment just digging himself deeper. So he's saying they have no struggles. They are free from burdens. They scoff, speak malice. Their bodies are healthy and strong and just digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper. And then after expressing what he perceives to be happening around him, in the next section he looks back to himself and how he's feeling when he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's a leader in the church. He obeys the law. He does everything right. And yet his life is not going the way he thinks it should be going. And like SP said earlier, he sees non-believers getting promotions, having children, living the dream life in abundance. And he lives in what he perceives as pain and lack. And he starts to question, why am I even doing this? What is the point in following God? However, at the same time, in verse 15, where he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, and if he had spoken out how he was actually feeling, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. At this point, he's fully aware of his role as a leader in the church, and he knows that his words matter and could have a negative effect on the believers around him. By speaking what he was feeling, he could have put the faith of others at risk and put thoughts into the minds of the children of God that are just not supposed to be there. And although Asaph was a leader and he was subject to this high position of influence, I think that we all as believers can relate to him in this, that our words have power and our impure and our selfish thoughts, they harm ourselves. And when we choose to speak those out, we can end up hindering the spiritual growth of others. Um, Ephesians 4.29, I know we just got out of it, but we're going back, says, <laughs> let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So while Asaph does not speak the internal conflict he's facing, he knows who he is, he knows he's stuck in a hole, but he doesn't know why. And it's not until in verse 17, when he drags himself to church and he enters the sanctuary of God, that he finds his answer. His struggle is pretty much all in his head and as a result of this perspective that he has. And when he chose to remove himself from the world and walked into a place separate from earthly views, surrounded by others who know their desire is to follow God, he found the solution to his conflict he was seeking and the understanding of the eternities of the believers, him, and the non-believers. It's those days that we don't want to go to church, and he knows I have those days, um, that we generally desperately need to go. Um, Asaph, the worship leader, he could have gone in the first place out of obligation. It was his job. Perhaps he knew the worship band could not go on without the symbols, Or maybe, maybe he went for the free coffee and the pastries. Um, but regardless, he probably walked in with a smile on his face like we all do when we're internally dealing with crap. And that's disting us from the Lord. Um, but when he walked into the sanctuary of God, he found a revelation from the Lord that could redeem this untruthful mindset. It's in the presence of the Lord that we find our understanding. Asaph experienced more than just a moment of emotional connection, but rather a time of connecting with eternity and coming to a foundational understanding that was rooted in unchanging truth and knowledge rather than our fleeting emotions. He discerned the end of the wicked, and was faced with the reality that the here and now is so inconsequential compared to what awaits him in eternity. Colossians 3, 2 through 3, says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So for us today, with God, and knowing and having a faith in Christ, the things that we thought we needed have been replaced by the eternal gift of life that God has already given us. 
so I want to touch on this point that she made about emotional connection. Uh, just as a worship leader and someone who's grown up in the Vineyard Church, um, we are really good at connecting emotionally in the Vineyard. Um, <laughs> whether that be in worship or ministry time at the end of the services. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually a really, really beautiful thing. Our emotions can serve as a really quick way to connect with the Holy Spirit, a quick way to connect with the Father's heart and in the terms we're using today, connecting with eternity. However, what's important is what we do next once we're connected to the Holy Spirit with our emotions. It's important that we turn our eyes and we turn our ears on once we're connected to that. Because, and, and, and start asking the questions, what are you doing, Lord? What are you saying, Lord? And seeking his desires and his wants and seeking understanding of his desires and wants. Chris Vallotton, he's a teacher at, at Bethel, and he says, emotions or, or feelings are great servants, but they're terrible masters. So yes, I'm not saying emotions are bad. Uh, go after it in worship. You know, connect emotionally. Cry out in emotion. Let your emotions be known to the Lord. But seek truth and seek understanding of that truth. All right, so let's keep moving. Verse 18 through 20, Asaph speaks on the fate of the wicked and non-believers, saying, the Lord will cast them down to ruin, that, that they will be destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, in fire and fury. No way, that's... That's just, that's just President Trump. Uh, he says, they will be destroyed completely, swept away by terrors. Not that other fire and fury stuff. Anyways, Asaph sounds harsh here, but to be honest, uh, he speaks complete truth. This is their fate. This is their fate. Asaph speak, uh, may be speaking in spite here, but I think we can look at this and understand, to understand people's faith, non-believers' faith. So, um, yeah, to understand their fate, and, and so it can spur us on to spread Jesus' grace, his love, and his hope. Yeah. And then in the next verses, verses 21 to 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So Asaph admits before he came to this understanding and when he was dealing with the internal conflict and his mind was focused on the temporal things, he was ignorant, he was like an animal. When our minds are focused only on the present, we come before the Lord driven by our emotions and our instincts and our immediate satisfactions. But in Genesis, God places us above the, he puts us in a position above the animals and breathes life into us, and he gives us the opportunity to know him, not just to feel and not just to need him. Animals focus their attention on eating and procreating and do not have the ability to understand all that God has done and continues to do for them. And when our minds are fixed on fleeting things and comparing our external circumstances between one another, we approach God almost like a vending machine Asaph felt he was putting in everything he had, and he was not getting anything back. 
And A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base, base meaning immoral, wicked, or filthy. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He goes on to say, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems, for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. So God wants, to know, wants us to know more about him than the gifts that he freely gives. And yes, as it says in Matthew 7:11, he's a good father and he gives good gifts to his children who ask, but he wants us to know the eternal God for exactly who he is. So what comes to our minds when we think of God? How are we approaching him? Are we only praying for financial provision and other things that he's already promised us, which are good and valid things, and we should pray those things. But are we also praying for our colleagues and our neighbors and our family members to know God as we know him? How does our prayer life and our worship change when we take our attention off of the temporary things of this world? And we fix our eyes on a heavenly father who is more than just a good giver, but he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's the only righteous one. He's abounding in mercy and love, and he still chose to rescue us from death just to be in a relationship and just to share in that eternity with us. His desires become our desires, and then nothing else matters. So when our, when our perspective changes and we view our God like this, which, which you just read, um, or said. <laughs> We're reading from our notes. <laughs> um, our worship and prayer becomes what, what Asaph wrote at the end of the psalm. I, I think he puts it really well. Uh, verse 23 through 26. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And finally, in the last two verses of the psalm, Asaph reiterates the fate and eternity of the non-believers, that they shall perish and be put to an end. But he declares that for him, it is good to be near God. That while the wicked may appear to prosper on this earth, he is making a conscious choice to declare that God and his life as a servant and a follower of God is good. And then he makes the Lord his refuge. But this refuge is not meant to be a comfortable hiding place. In the goodness and the peace and the confidence that comes only from the Lord, Asaph makes a proclamation to tell the world all that God has done for him. So in studying and preparing for this, I've been trying to wrap my brain around what exactly is eternity, this thing that has no beginning, has no end. How can we actually grasp that? And I don't know if we can ever grasp it exactly. But for one, we know that the word is eternal. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So we can confidently fix our minds on the word and know that we are walking in truth. And then there's eternity with God, and there's eternity without God. And God gives us this gift of time on earth to know, to know him <laughs> through the word as savior and to help lead others to that same knowledge so that theirs and our eternity can be with him and not without him. But if I am complacent in my own eternity, then I don't think I really understand the weight of eternity. 
If I'm hiding in the refuge of God and complacent in the sureness of my own eternity with God, and if I do nothing about those on earth who face an eternity without God, then I don't understand the weight of eternity. The Lord calls us to go and to make disciples in all nations and to tell the world who he is and what he's done. So like Asaph, I must daily choose to know that God is good, that out of his refuge, in the fullness of his goodness and peaceful assuredness, I am called to declare to the people that I do life with, with my family members, and that all that he has done for me, and sending his son to die in my place, that I might share an eternity with him. All right. So we made it through the psalm. Woo! <laughs> All right. We're nearing the end, um, but we want to make three practical points as to how we can adjust our perspective. Um, so first, first point is that we can fast. Uh, fasting is not a, a common topic uh, in the church. We talk about it a little bit, but... Um, but uh, so, so I want to explain it and kind of break it down and how we can do it. So fasting, it's first and foremost, bare bones is just sacrificial worship. Uh, you're, you're sacrificing one part of your life to focus on the Lord in, in other ways. And then uh, secondly, it's a, it's a spiritual calibration. And I'll explain what that means in a second. There are uh, a number of ways to, to fast. You can fast food, coffee, social media, sweets. Um, there are other plans that you can do. Um, I would say when deciding what to fast is first just be in prayer about it and ask the Lord what he wants you to give up um, uh, for a certain amount of time. And secondly is to evaluate what you're depending on in life. And a good way to good way to evaluate that is by asking yourself, what takes my time and what takes my money? Um, so now when we fast, the Lord wants it for a purpose. And how do I know this? Well, he says it literally in Isaiah 58, 3 through 9. People are asking the Lord why he doesn't acknowledge them when they fast. And here's his reply. I'm reading from uh, the message because it's really good. Uh, it's, it'll come up. Yeah, it's already up because Abby's on top of it. Um, yeah, this is his reply. Well, here's why. The bottom line of your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting? A fast that I, God, would like? Verse 6, it says, this is the kind of fast day I'm after. To break the chains of injustice. Get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on. Your lives will turn around at once. 
Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will, will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and he'll say, here I am. The Lord wants us to fast and pray for his power and his love to move to those in need. Now, when we fast, it's supposed to be private. Jesus says in Matthew 6, to operate normally when you fast, not to receive glory from others as you make it known that you're fasting or make yourself look holy. As, as I said before, and as it said in, as it said in Isaiah, that as we fast, our spirits get recalibrated. And as Isaiah said, the lights turn on. The, our lives are, will be turned around. Um, yeah, I've lost my place in my notes. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, just our, our righteousness from, from the, that fasting will, will pave our way and, and God will secure our path. So personally in my life, I've struggled with issues that young men struggle with, um, which is sexual lust and pornography. Um, now, I'm saying this because I've experienced a lot of freedom from it through fasting. Um, the first time I intensely fasted, it was hard. But when I came to the end of it, I said to myself, man, if I can say no to food for this long, I can definitely say no to food to this issue in my life. It was empowering. And I felt like I, I had control of, of my being. Um, so practically speaking, when we fast, we're basically telling our bodies and even our minds, no. And we're telling our spirit, yes. It helps you realize what you're feeding yourself and, when you're, and where you're getting your satisfaction, kind of where your perspective is. Uh, so as you say no to food, it's just, uh, it's just you're replacing that with prayer, the word, and with worship. So I'd say if you don't feel like you're in control, then try <laughs> give fasting a try. <laughs> it's not going to hurt you. It's just going to make you a little hungry or it'll take you off social media for a little bit. Um, but if you still don't really know how to do it, then just seek guidance from, from Steve, Viv, uh, or others who have done it before. So, yeah. And then another practical way to maintain an eternal perspective is to share life with a community of people who spur you on towards just that. And on a personal note for me, a few years ago through a series of events, I developed an unhealthy relationship with food that I would call an eating disorder. Um, in a time when I felt so out of control of my thoughts and my emotions and my circumstances, Food was the only thing that I felt I could control, and that need for control, though, consumed my thoughts, and it replaced my need for relationship and community. So I would turn down offers to get a meal with friends because the restaurant chosen didn't have any safe foods for me to eat. Or I would use school and work as an excuse to not go to small group, not because I was actually too swamped, but because I was afraid of what would be served at dinner. And coming to church and taking communion, which is something we're about to do, was a risk because of the chance that I would actually have to eat bread. 
And uh, instead of focusing on the remembrance of what my Savior has done for me and my fellow believers in delivering us from death and through his grace bringing me into eternity, my only prayer was that the elements would be those little styrofoam wafers and no sugar added grape juice <laughs> um, and just anything but bread. Um, so I was stuck in this unhealthy mindset where in my mind bread was the devil and my body was the most important thing and my strongest focus. And these thoughts ruled my mind and narrowed my perspective so that I could not see beyond to the wider eternal things where no, bread is not the devil. The eternal truth is that there is Satan and there is God and there is the father of lies and there is the God of mercy and truth. And through prayer and studying of the word and who the Lord says I am, you start to come out of that and and you get better and you know that you know who you are and you know who you should be, but you really quickly realize that you just can't do it by yourself and you need accountability and you need other people. And as we said before, I'm a tax accountant and we have this horrendous thing called a busy season where the US tax season you're working 80 to 100 hour weeks and for something as meaningless as US tax. And you're surrounded by people day and night who don't know the Lord and who don't share your values and think how you think. and I couldn't go to church, and I didn't even have the option to back out of small group because it just wasn't going to happen. But I can now say that I'm thankful for busy season because it was a reminder in being so starved of that community and in not having it, I realized just how desperately I actually need it. We need to laugh, and we need to share meals with others that come together with that shared understanding that all that matters is Jesus and what he's done. And we need accountability, and we need people to ask how we are doing, and to speak truth in our lives when we just can't see it. And our final point is really quick. Um, it's just to simply look at Jesus, look to Jesus in every circumstance. Growing up, my dad would tell me and my siblings over and over that there's a lot of things that make life and make the Christian faith complicated. But the only thing you really need to focus on is Jesus, as simple as that is, uh, his sacrifice that he gave and the love he has for you. The other things, then they, they don't necessarily disappear, but they just become far less important. They, they come, become much, much smaller in comparison. So to kind of tie it all together, I'm going to read um, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 over us, uh, just because it, it, yeah, it just ties it all together for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we're going to take communion. Uh, communion is a thing we do to tell Jesus that we remember him and what he's done. Uh, the bread represents his body. Uh, that was broken, and the blood represents the blood he poured out for us. So, yeah, if, if the people who are helping with communion and then the worship team come on up. Um, 
So as we take communion today, let's surrender our focus to Jesus. You might be in that place, um, but just continue to surrender it to him. Maybe you're in a place where you know your mindset is not where it needs to be. Or you feel like you're in a hole of bitterness like Asaph or depression or fear or whatever it may be. Um, after we take communion, come up and let someone come up beside you and pray with you. Someone who can give you a hand out of the hole and pray with you. Um, if you're not in those places, but you want prayer for something else, come on. If you need healing in your body, come on. Um, if none of the above, then go after it in worship and just give him your all. Yeah. So come, let's, let's have community together, uh, communion together. Communion. All right.